0: Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the
1: ecosystems on which we depend.
0: Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you!
1: The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms.
2: You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK austria it's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago and we're doing it now we can begin to defend the earth against the disaster of global warming
3: the green market
2: podcast hello i'm luke warren host of the green market podcast a show from the british conservation alliance in association with the austrian economic center and cedar gold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. Since the Paris Summit of the European Economic Community in October 1972, environmentalism has been a priority of the European Union. Since the ensuing first environmental action programme, the EU has steered the approach member states take with regards to environmental policies, whether that be through legislation, enforcement and funding. However, the policies adopted have often been overtly centralised and impeded innovation and private actors. Take, for example, the common fisheries policy, which employs a quota system and has led to excess catch being cast away by fishermen and a significant depletion of fish stocks. Yet, while significant challenges remain for the EU and its member states in achieving its environmental objectives, very real opportunities remain. The EU's Green New Deal does provide some pro-innovation market oriented policies, such as the phasing out of subsidies for certain energy sources. This week's episode will focus on the challenges and opportunities the European Union and its member states face in achieving its environmental ambitions, and the market-based policies that may help in doing so. Today, I am joined by Adam Bartha, Kai Weiss, and Frederick Eriksson. Adam Bartha is the director of Epicentre, an independent network of nine leading think tanks from across Europe which seeks to promote free society and free market ideals. Guy Weiss is the Research and Outreach Coordinator of the Austrian Economic Centre and a board member of the Frederick A. von Hayek Institute. Frederick Eriksson is the Director and Founder of the European Centre for International Political Economy. Before co-founding it, he was an advisor to the British government and the Chief Economist at Timbro. Thank you all very much for joining me here today. I'd like to start by discussing the current situation the EU and its member states finds itself in. The EU has set itself some very significant objectives, climate neutrality by 2050, cutting greenhouse gas emissions by at least 40% by 2030, and boosting the share of renewable energy by at least 30% in the same timeline. What significant environmental challenges does the EU currently face? Kai, would you like to start?
3: Sure, thanks for having me. Um, I would say that there are many different challenges um, that I could name, for instance, that uh, there's obviously the issue of transitioning from fossil fuels uh, to more environmentally friendly renewable energy sources, Um, and what the exact process should be. There are also many differences between member states. Uh, Germany, for instance, is obviously well known for completely rejecting nuclear energy. Um, Then there are other problems, perhaps, also finding a place in the global debate between, for instance, the US and China, and what can Europe actually achieve in that global debate about global warming. but I would say the main issue in many regards is EU policies themselves. They, as you obviously already described, um, they often have rather hurt the environment and have had unintended consequences. And especially when I look at the European Green Deal, as we will discuss later on, I think there's always this kind of idea that any environmental policy on the EU level has to be very centralized. And that might be a problem because I don't really think that the goals that the EU has set are unrealistic, um, but you have to achieve them through um, pro-market approaches. And I don't really see that a lot in the EU. So that's why I would see the main um, impediment.
1: I agree with Kai completely. I, I think the big question is now that the political goal is set, we want to achieve a carbon neutral economy by 2050, what is the most economically efficient way to get there, and I'm a bit worried about um, the current discussions in Brussels, basically because what I see is a set of mutually incompatible goals. Um, At the moment, uh, the European Union is subsidizing a lot of things that go against this carbon neutral economy in 2050. So I think a lot of the discussions in Brussels and in the history of the European Union revolve there around the common agriculture policy, which is basically 45% of the current EU budget and is moving towards somewhat more environmental-friendly processes. But still, at the moment, the EU is handing out subsidies based on the size of arable land to farmers across the EU, whilst also trying to reduce um, CO2 emissions um, in the farming process. I think we have so many mutually incompatible goals. Kai, Kai already mentioned the German uh, phasing off of the nuclear power plants, whilst in neighbouring Poland, the government is subsidising uh, coal power plants, and Germany is importing electricity from Poland on the days when it doesn't have enough renewable energy. So because of the way the European Union operates and because of the ever-growing kind of need to regulate all aspects um, of our economies, I think we set ourselves mutually incompatible goals um, as European Union citizens and we really have to think about how to simplify the system, how to really focus on the main framework that you can set for national Um, governments in order to help them to achieve this carbon neutrality by 2050, but kind of the going down the rabbit hole of regulating and prescribing every aspect of how to achieve that, I don't think that's feasible and I don't
2: think that's going to work. And Frederick, what are your thoughts?
1: I'd
0: I'd agree with um, what both um, Kai and Adam have said. I mean, I think the EU has ended up in the type of problems that you tend to end up with if you take a very centralized approach to, you know, setting goals for what is going to be achieved 30 or 40 years from now. Um, You begin to work with uh, uh, policy instruments that require sort of a a lot of information and then you need to coordinate across different type of policy areas. And of course, that's an impossibility in any form of governments, you end up with, uh, left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing on the one hand you claim uh that sort of there's a paramount goal of achieving a net zero situation for 2050 on the other hand you want to promote uh, your agriculture you want to promote your industry um, and you want to do it in a way where sort of green jobs basically means you know you want to generate more green jobs and you think that more green jobs basically means high paying jobs which it's it's a contradiction in terms if you look at sort of what the broader interest is here, which is of course that you know most green jobs should be uh, ideally not cost very much at all because that means it's going to be very easy to achieve uh, a good energy transition in the economy. So um, sort of you you, you you get a policy where you simply cannot work with simple, transparent methodologies in order to achieve your goals. So you you, you venture into many other types of policies. You you begin to regulate what the car fleet is going to be sort of be for each and every car manufacturer in Europe. Um, you're in trying to decide policy for how um, building standards are going to be. And that those standards are going to apply both in Sort of the freezing north, as well as in 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 the Mediterranean south, and uh, it gets it gets just very complicated. Um, for instance, you've had this big debate right now on on investment and taxonomy for energy investments and climate investments, where um, it's basically politics, not science, which is defining how um, these definitions occur. Which means sort of that investments in nuclear energy right now isn't uh, isn't calculated as sort of a, a, a good climate-related investment or environment-related investments while investment in natural gas is. Um, um, so this is the problem. Um, um, what I would add, finally, I think it's, what has happened in Brussels, as of course in many other countries, is that uh, policymakers have been stung by this bee of Greta Thunberg and sort of the notion that uh, fighting climate change basically means that um, we are all going to be um, uh, societies which rely much less on market solutions to things that that the climate change transition basically means that you're going to change human nature that we're going to have less conflicts or we're going to have less competition and you they, they basically prefer to have a society where the state is, much more dominant than it is right now and unfortunately that's that's the underlying idea which is fusing a lot of the climate change policies that come out from brussels as well
3: just to add one thing i think i think both adam and frederick made excellent points and adam already brought up the common agricultural policy as i think is one prime example of the problems that eu environmental policy often has so for instance adam obviously already mentioned a few problems but I was quite shocked, I think two years ago, the New York Times uh, did a study and showed that when you look at common agricultural policy subsidies and where they go, you have a pretty clear correlation between where the subsidies go and where nitrate pollution is the highest, which, I mean, if you wanna be an environmentally aware European Union, then that probably should get you thinking. And there are other things where the New York Times showed that, you know, greenhouse gas emissions actually increase in agriculture because of the subsidies. You have eco uh, systems and bird populations and so forth suffering from it. And so you have a lot of these policies that actually hurt the environment and they continue to exist because of vested interests and politicians not being able to really get rid of them. But yeah, I just want to add that.
2: Yeah, I would also want to add one point um, on, Frederick, when you said about politics, not science. Um, some of the policies of the EU have come under fire for effectively being about integration, not about science. Um, so um, I think it was Michael Liebrich uh, from Bloomberg New Energy Finance looked at the 2000 projects of Horizon 2020. And the number related to graphene, batteries and PV, you know, which are three key technologies for future clean energy, accounted for approximately 45 projects. In comparison, those related to social accounted for about 262 projects and those concerning corporation amounted to about 142. Um, Obviously, these are two, you know, they are important, but in comparison to, you know, something as important as graphene or batteries or PV, it really did uh, kind of surmount to a much higher figure. Um, So we have kind of talked a little bit about the impediments the EU faces with regards to achieving its... Um, environmental ambitions, but what about the kind of the bureaucratic nature of the EU's institutions and the reliance on the precautionary principle? How much of an effect do they have as well? Um, Adam, perhaps you would like to start?
1: I think it's a massive effect. If you look at how a lot of the new technologies have been developing across the world, um, talking about GMO farming, talking about new methods of creating uh meat that essentially don't rely on animal stocks, um, ideas on vertical farming. A lot of them originate from researchers and companies initially based in Europe, but they got funding and they grew and they set up um, their consumer-facing business elsewhere. And I think a main cause of that is the um, illiberal application of the precautionary principle. So basically, the precautionary principle outlines how something that hasn't been proven to be safe is assumed not to be safe, right? And I think under processes um, that are quite urgent, be it climate change, be it the COVID pandemic, um, this over-application and overuse of the precautionary principle leads to suboptimal outcomes, to say the least. Um, And how to reform that? I think it's a very, very difficult question because it's not just a matter for the European Union's institutions. This is widely applicable to national governments across Europe. Um, This is the attitude for most continental European governments. So it's not, not an accident, but it's by design that this has been the nature of most EU discussions as well. Um, my colleague recently did publish a very interesting article on the liberal application of the pre principle. So you don't need to necessarily get rid of the principle, but you need to apply it and properly measure what are the costs if something gets implemented five years uh, instead of today when it comes to methods, how to reduce CO2 emissions, for example. So there are more ways, you know, we don't have to be contrarians as free market supporters of um, uh, environmental policies. We don't have to be contrarians and get rid of everything that's happening um, within EU institutions and their ideologies. I think we can prove that there are more liberal and more pre-market friendly aspects of applying already existing principles, um, but it's gonna be a pretty difficult battle because it's ingrained in most continental European countries' mindset.
2: And Frederick, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I agree. I mean, if you take the precautionary
0: principle itself, I mean, I think there are two problems here. Uh, The first problem is sort of the broad soft law that has developed over the last 20 years, uh, which is now becoming pretty insidious uh, and means that you have sort of export of legal concepts across the world uh, on precautionary principle, um, that leads sort of to major problems, not just in Europe, but in other parts of the world as well. Uh, for instance, when they want to export from, from that part of the world into Europe. Um, so that is a problem. Um, another problem is that um, um, no one can, sort of, there is no established um, bureaucratic formula for how you actually decide um. Um, when the precautionary principle means that you're going to approve something or when you are going to reject something. Uh, I mean, if you look, for instance, at the example that Adam took up, which is on on, on GMOs, uh, uh, especially the potato case that was up in Europe uh, um, 10 years ago. I mean, that that product, I mean, that potato uh, was approved, uh, but the European Commission still couldn't make the decision to provide the uh, market approval for it because there were uh, lots of different governments that you know were still campaigning against the use of of that uh, gm potato so we basically ended up with a um, non-decision leading to companies to withdraw the applications to market these products on the european market and the BASF moving its entire GMO facility out of Europe to another part of the world because of the inhospitable climate for uh, for these type of innovations in Europe. So I think we I think there is sort of a, a a problem here which isn't about the definition or the concept of the precautionary principle itself. It's about how it's being used in the political process and the fact that there is no common understanding for. You know, wh- you know wh- when it's going to lead to something being approved or something being rejected. We had the same thing coming up over uh, herbicides um, a few years ago um, when uh, agencies in Europe, um, that is, uh, uh, chemical authorities, food safety authorities in Europe as well in other parts of the world, was um, uh, basically uh, given uh, uh, a clear bill of health to. Uh, to, to these pesticides in questions, uh, basically uh, using Roundup. Uh, but still, the political process were leading to a different decision because they used the precautionary principle uh, in a non scientific way for political, for political decisions. So I think there is a problem there. On the whole, I'd say this problem is, is equally big in other parts of the world. If you look, for instance, at the use of precautionary principle in American uh, environmental politics right now, I think that's, that's sort of pretty, pretty dark night scenarios that we're looking at. Uh, I think one of the things uh, that is broadly uh, good in EU policy is the fact that they are uh, using the emission trading scheme as the basis for it. And that there is in this system an idea of basically pricing um carbon uh, in a way that's going to lead to uh more market-based uh, adjustments in the future and i think that's pretty different from what we see in sort of in other countries i would have i would have liked to see much more of of uh, sort of a carbon price approach to regulating um uh, the, the use of carbon that we have seen but but still it is a fairly robust system it could have been designed in different ways to uh, uh to generate sort of slightly different outcomes than we have seen I mean a carbon tax could have been better than than a cap and trade system uh, but still it's 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 a pretty good system which leads to uh, more transparency more transparency than to opaqueness and I would like to see eu focusing a lot more um, of its of its sort of broad climate change policies on the ETS and much less on sort of these sectoral non-market type of regulations that we have a final point is on research and development and looking at um, uh, you brought up rice in 2020 and and these sort of things so i think you i think sort of most people would agree sort of that one of the best strategies for investing in in climate neutrality would be to increase uh, r d funding and perhaps use some of that r d funding to Basically, you know, make bets on crazy ideas that may generate uh, very interesting results in the future. Um, now we are actually now working with an EU policy or an EU budget agreement, which is going to nominally cut the expenditures that goes to R and D. And this was a consequence of the budget stitch up that was made last summer, uh, when the new uh, packages uh, to support Uh, corona hit economies um, uh, made them sort of made their way into the budget and that had as a consequence that they also needed to cut other core expenditures and that cut ended up on the r d budget rather than on on common agriculture policy and on regional cohesion so unfortunately we have a policy in europe we're probably going to see less money being spent of e-resources on on r d and the type of the, the sort of the type of policies that could generate a lot of ex- exciting, interesting technologies in the future that is going to emit much less carbon than current technologies.
2: So I'd like to turn to the European Green New Deal, which is effectively the kind of key vehicle that the EU envisions it achieving its environmental objectives and targets. But what these proposals also demonstrate is a political agenda that we've also discussed about, you know, further centralization of power under EU institutions, but also this kind of disregard of the private sector as a tool in aiding conservation of the environments and reducing emissions. Uh, What other shortcomings do you believe this Green Deal to have and what risks would it entail? Kai, would you like to start?
3: Sure. So um, when I look at the European Green Deal, proposal. I would say, in many regards, the main problem is sort of the political hubris from the European Commission. I remember when Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, um, proposed the European Green Deal in a speech. She called it the Europe's Man of the Moon moment, which already tells you how great she thinks that will be. But. I would say there are two main problems so one you obviously already mentioned namely that there's sort of a a lack of belief that the economy as well as civil society can do much of anything for the environment that it always needs to be centrally directed from brussels sure from time to time in the proposal um the eu or the commission argues that there is obviously room for businesses and for local entities and regions to do something positive But it's always kind of linked of, you know, Brussels needs to set the incentives for that or Brussels needs to help them out, the businesses or the the regions. And so in a sense, it is a continuation of the whole EU strategy of, you know, strategic autonomy and, you know, building their own champions and so forth in picking winners and losers in the private economy, which is not very pro-market. I would say it's more um, very... Directing, sort of directing the economy rather than letting it just setting the framework and letting it work. Um, And in that sense, it's part of the whole industrial strategy vision. Um, And the other thing, and you already mentioned it, Luke, uh, with Horizon twenty twenty, is that it mixes similarly to the Green New Deal in the US. It mixes environmental concerns with other things that really don't have anything to do with the environment. So. In the proposal, it constantly is argued that this transition needs to be just and it needs to be inclusive and you need to take into account sort of the socio-economic aspects and nobody should be left behind and they want to implement the just transition mechanism as well, which could cost up to 100 billion euros. Uh, And so it's all about, you know, bringing in some other visions as well that are more, you know, that you see more on the uh, left economically. Uh, of the political spectrum and that really have nothing to do with okay what's the best way to tackling climate change it's really about all other kinds of issues um and also politicizes a lot of um areas that probably shouldn't be politicized and i think frederick already mentioned that uh, looking at the taxonomy also looking at topics like green finance where it is argued that the european central bank should try to green the mon- green their monetary policy which in a sense it's impossible because the monetary policy should be should be neutral it should be basically just stabilizing uh the monetary system um, and the euro and now there are these demands okay everything needs to be environmental everything needs to be politicized and so um i would say the two main problems are centralizing aspects the whole uh, brussels needs to do most of the things and on the other hand on the one hand, politicizing everything else under the mantle of global warming, but also bringing into the proposal things that have nothing to do with the environment.
2: And Adam, would you agree or?
1: It's difficult because the Green New Deal is not one piece of legislation, right? It's a series of many different upcoming directives, recommendations. So therefore there will be some good parts and some bad parts. So if I had to kind of rank them, and if I have to start with the bad tier. What Kai mentioned about the just transition mechanism, I think that belongs to the bet tier. I think that's basically essentially a payoff to Eastern European member states um, and this cohesion subsidies just by other name. Um, I don't think that the European Union knows best how to spend uh, that money. I think local, uh, local campaigners and local municipalities would be a lot more efficient in helping uh, probably with building standards, ensuring that uh, local companies are reforming in a more environmentally, environmentally friendly way. So I don't think that we need specific new funding for that. Um, a potential good tier would be, from my perspective, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So if we set very ambitious targets within the European Union, uh, when it comes to carbon emissions, Uh, We want to ensure that other countries are slowly adopting uh, some environmental-friendly policies as well. I'm a massive supporter of free and open trade. And basically, besides a kind of carbon border adjustment mechanism, I would have completely open trade across the globe. But I think it's important to emphasize that there is a strong manufacturing base within the European Union. And if that base would be hindered because of an introduction of a carbon um, tax or because of the further development of the cap and trade system, um, I don't think that they should be negatively impacted. And incentivizing other countries across the globe to become more environmentally friendly in a pretty market-friendly way, I think that belongs to the good tier. Um, I think there is also a joke here to be fair. Um, I, I don't know whether you have heard about the new European Bauhaus. Uh, that, that's also part of the Green New Deal. Um, basically that's, that's the part that Frederick Cory touched upon building standards across the European Union, but also mixed with some aesthetics and kind of a, 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 an idea about how we can return to the good old days when nice stuff was built across Europe put into a kind of green environmentalist image that's basically help, helps to reduce um, inefficient energy consumption across households, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, that it should be a policy goal to have households um, emit less CO2, but it's not something that can or should be done in a centrally planned way. By EU institutions. So it's a mixed picture. There's some good parts, there are some bad parts. I hope that the good parts are going to be implemented in a reasonably pro-market and um, environmental friendly way. And I hope that they're not going to be captured by special interests and chewed up until everyone is happy about them because that usually happens with uh, with some, some of the better ideas as well. Um, so. So far, it's a mixed picture, but I think that's why free marketeers need to be there during the discussions, need to accept the political goal of carbon neutrality in the long-term, and then contribute to the debate about what are the most efficient ways to achieve
2: it. So Adam, you did talk about the kind of benefits and the good side of the Green New Deal and some of its directives, and obviously the phasing out subsidies of energy sources is one welcome step towards creating a fairer competitive energy market. Frederick, what other kind of benefits or good parts are there to this Green New Deal and its directives?
0: I mean, I think, I think I'd think i say sort of the major part of it is that we're going to increase the costs of carbon emission. Um, that sort of the, the, the cost of getting uh, uh, or buying permits in order to emit are going to go up, up um, which basically means that we are using sort of a market mechanism in order to get... Adjustments into the economy, motivating uh, investments in, in in carbon-friendly energy sources, uh, uh, motivating investments in new technology, and investment in, in, in innovation in production technology. Um, and I think that is that is the sort of the major plank of of uh, of the Green Deal. I mean, all the other stuff when it comes to different spending areas uh, that the Commission wants to to do. I think they are sort of, at best, they're going to have negligible effects, um, both on on carbon emission and climate change and and on the economy as a whole. So uh, I don't think they are going to have that much of an impact at all. One issue where I would uh, sort of be on the other side of the argument from Adam is on on, uh, what is sort of euphemistically called uh, a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, which, of course, it isn't. I mean, the idea that is being worked up is a carbon tax that is going to be applied to some of the uh, foreign suppliers. Um, the result of that is going to be predictably, of course, that other countries are going to introduce the same against Europe, and that they are probably going to take issue with the emission trading scheme generally, since there is a high degree of subsidisation that has existed in the ETS system through uh, free allotments, uh, etc. So. You know, if 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 Europe is actually going down that road, uh, it's it's like sort of putting a bomb under sort of the free trading system we have, going to lead to a lot of trade conflicts, and ultimately that we're going to have less useful cross-border exchange of product and technology that will both generate more growth and generate more uh, more sharing of technology uh, that is going to help to reduce. Uh, carbon emissions. So I think that would be sort of a
1: really bad way of of uh, uh, of pursuing policy. I share your worries completely. I think it really depends on how it's going to be applied. I, and I think you're rightly suspicious about you know the potential dangers of using it as a protectionist tool. I can unfortunately easily imagine that. But the concept in and out of itself, I think, is not necessarily a bad one. It really depends how convincingly the EU is basically able to measure um, the carbon emission of different production mechanisms and whether it's gonna be using it in a politically neutral uh, way and not use it as a protectionist weapon. I understand your concerns and I think I do share them, um, but in and of itself, the concept I don't think is a bad one.
3: I'd actually have another comment to what Adam said, um, also on the carbon water mechanism. and. I was just wondering because you also mentioned at the end uh, something like that there are good parts in the European Green Deal and obviously there are. But uh, you mentioned something like if it, there are good parts, if it's not captured by special interests and uh, you know um, the political process, and same with the carbon border mechanism. You just said that you would hope then that it wouldn't be used as a protectionism tool, protectionist tool. Um, and I was just wondering, looking at what we discussed at the beginning um, of how the EU has done environmental policy in the past. How, are there any ways you think this could be ensured that regulatory capture wouldn't happen or are you just more optimistic maybe than I for instance am? I mean, ensuring a hundred
1: percent, ensuring in a hundred percent efficient way, I'm not sure it exists, but if we actually manage to um go beyond Europe's borders when these discussions are happening. I think the US is partially back at the table with the new Biden administration. Um, I can imagine some of the more developed southeastern, um, southeastern Asian economies uh, being part of this discussion. I think if we manage to find more globally oriented solutions to achieve carbon neutrality, in the long-term, then I, I'm, I'm not that worried about you know, the effects of the carbon border adjustment mechanism being used against uh, the Republican administration in the US 10 years down the line. I think if Europe goes its own way um, and these discussions are not happening globally, it's gonna be a lot more difficult. And there is certainly gonna be continuous pressure to to use it as a protectionist mechanism. If it already exists, then of course, it's a lot easier to use it. Um, But I really struggle to think of a scenario where domestically, and I mean, from a pan-European position, EU is domestic affairs. If as an EU um, kind of attitude, we try to achieve carbon neutrality by ourselves, and the rest of the world just ignores what's happening, it's horrible for our manufacturers, it's horrible for our economy, and it has negligible impact on climate change globally. So we really do need to ensure that the rest of the world is at least partially going in the same direction. Otherwise, a lot of these ideals are gonna remain ideals with very negligible positive
2: outcomes for the world. I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, I usually end with asking everyone to make some concluding remarks and where we can find out more about your work. Um, Kai, would you like to start?
3: Sure. So thanks again for having me. Um, What you can do basically is go to our website. It's www.austriancenter.com um what i can also mention here is our book green market revolution which we did with the uh, british conservation alliance last year there's also an i want to say excellent chapter what i wrote it myself so i shouldn't probably say uh, that uh, there's a chapter on eu environmental policy in there um so if you want to read that book it's free there's a free pdf and you can also purchase a physical copy at www.greenmarketrevolution.eco
2: E-C-O. Thank you very much for doing the uh, promotion for me on that side. Um, Frederick, what about you?
0: I'd say the same thing, which is if you want to connect with uh, my work and the work of my colleagues on on these issues, everything is going to be available on our website, ecipe.org. You can find work related to... um, Uh, Stuff that we've been doing on on uh, environment and climate change issues in trade agreements. Uh, We have a new paper coming out pretty soon on uh, which relates to how sort of carbon tariffs uh, are going to be basically a mechanism that are going to slow down uh, the technological improvements in in many of the industries in Europe that are working with or saddled with all technologies that are emitting uh, quite a lot. Um, um so that's that's the best way to keep in touch with the stuff that we are doing.
2: Thank you. And Adam.
1: Well, we are very much a member I think tank-driven organization. So depending on where you are in Europe, you can read us in Spain, France, Greece, Poland, and, and in nine European languages. Um, but if you're specifically interested in the pan-European EU-related debate, then epicenternetwork.eu is your place to go. Um, We have loads of upcoming publications on free market environmentalism. A lot of our member think tanks are active on this front. So there will be, I'm sure, very many future discussions.
2: And if you'd like to learn more about the British Conservation Alliance's work, um, thank you already, Kai, for uh, doing the promo on that side. But uh, if you'd like to learn more about us, please follow us online at uh, www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at bca underscore eco. Thank you all very much once again for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.